0: Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. We got another old faithful lined up for today in our Lessons Learned series. I'm not going to tell you what it is just yet. fun in that? If I told you now and you're like, I don't really like that lesson, you turn the show off. I got to make sure you get to the middle advertisement that our sponsors drop in there. Can <laughs> I? <laughs> gotta, I gotta be clever enough to get it to that point. Welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome to Fantasy NBA. Today, it's Tuesday's edition, April the 19th. Off-season show number seven. We'll have lesson learned number six. We'll also talk a little playoff basketball. Yesterday, we did a nice little deep dive into how pace actually translates to handicapping. And it really bore itself out nicely. Remember, we talked at tremendous length about that Philly Toronto 242 total in game one and how game two opened five points higher and then immediately came crashing down. And it wasn't just because Scotty Barnes got ruled out. I can I can guarantee you of that. It was because everybody looked around and went, oh yeah, so the pace of this game actually had it at about what did I say it was? Like 210? 204, you know something something around 210 and it went over by 30-some-odd points. And then this one, this most recent game, Philly once again beating up on the Raptors. Toronto, Gary Trent tried to play, didn't really have anything in the tank. Freddie Van Fleet kept him close for, I don't know, 20-some-odd minutes, but just too much too much Philadelphia. They haven't really even needed James Harden at this point. Maxie, Harris, and Embiid got in on the fun in this ball game, But it's that same kind of thing. So first of all, worth pointing out Philly only took 69 attempts in this game largely because they got 30 free throws to the Raptors 12 but again it's it's about looking at the pace the Raptors did go under their expected total but only by about seven or eight points you know it wasn't as extreme as you might think I think their expected total on pace was 104 so they went under by seven and Philly I think their expected total was 98. So they actually went over by 14, thanks again to massive free throw numbers. And this time, really good field goal percent. So game got slower. What did I say? 104-98. Expected total was 202. Finished at 209. I mean, we could really, we could keep rolling under on this series. If you see the pace continue to drop lower. Pace on the first one was near 210. This one was closer to the low 200s. That's what you need to be looking at. Not what the actual total was, but what it should have been without extenuating or whatever circumstances you want to call them. Anyway, we'll go through all this stuff momentarily. Uh, We'll talk playoff basketball first. We'll get everybody set up for the games coming up today. We don't need to go through... I don't want to go through the Monday results that much because it almost feels like we should probably do that uh, on tomorrow's show when a bunch of these teams play again. What I'd like to do today is compare the Tuesday lines to the results from Sunday, for the most part. Atlanta, Miami, Minnesota, Memphis, New Orleans, Phoenix, those are the three games coming up tonight. That's three of the four games that happened on Sunday. Boston, Brooklyn, those teams got the extra day off, so they'll roll into tomorrow. So we'll just compare. We'll take whatever's happening on, you know, whatever given day, today being Tuesday, and then we'll roll it back, and we'll talk a bit about how that pace factor comes in on our handicapping. And then... After that, we'll do our lesson learned of the day. So, quickly here, well, not that quickly. What the hell's my rush? It's the offseason. Miami, Atlanta. Interestingly, I think this game might be the one where the numbers don't match all that well to the previous game, and I can't. I'm having a little trouble reconciling the two. So Miami beat Atlanta handily in game one, 115-91. That's a total of 206, unless I'm goofing up my math in some way, which is always a possibility. Uh, Line was 220 and a half, so it went way under. Miami covered easily. They were favored by six and a half points. But as you look at the pace of that ballgame, yes, it went under by a lot, but it should have only gone under by a little less than that, which is sort of a weird assessment when you look back at how the game unfolded. So on the Miami side, they obviously went over their expected number. You shoot 52.5%, you make 18 three-pointers. Even if your turnovers are high, your free throws aren't very good, you're still going to end up over your expected pace. I think they were supposed to be around 106. They cleared up by about nine points. On the Atlanta side, Interestingly enough, because the rebounding was pretty even in this game, turnovers are not all that far apart, the pace was pretty similar, and the opportunity count for the two teams was actually pretty close. I think Atlanta was supposed to be around 107, something in that neck of the woods. Maybe they they might have actually been 106 also. 106, 107. So between the two teams, this one should have landed about 212, 213 points, which is why I believe... The Hawks-Heat number hasn't really changed much between the two games. There's an expectation that the Hawks make adjustments here for Game 2, that they perform better, turnovers lower, field goal percent higher, and that 91 climbs in some capacity. I think there's an equal assessment that on the, on the Heat side, Duncan Robinson doesn't go uh, 9 for 10 from the field with 8 three-pointers in Game 2. Although you could also argue Jimmy Butler, probably going to be better at the free throw line. Bam Adebayo, probably just going to do more in this next ballgame. Tyler Hero probably does more in this next ballgame. So you take out Duncan Robinson, but you can kind of make up for it with some of the other guys. I actually think, and it's weird, I, you know, I, there's a little bit of a, of a public element to this notion But with the number going up, open to 217, so they did bring it down a little bit, and it's actually been kind of slowly creeping up now. It's near 219 at some places. I think you might have room for another under again. Getting up to 220 is a pretty big mark when you consider that the pace had this thing around 212, and series tend to slow down a little bit. My hesitation for getting in on the under in this game, is that I do think Atlanta makes some adjustments, and I think one of them is moving quicker. Get Trey Young can't possibly be any worse. So does Miami put up a buck 15 again? It's a possibility. And then if you combine that with a slightly better Atlanta performance, how much better do they go? What does Atlanta get to? Do they get to 100? Do they get to 105? Because if they get to 105, then the game might very well go over. I think Miami ultimately wins again. They're just a better team, and Atlanta's without Clint Capella right now. That's kind of their one—that's the one thing they can count on on the interior, and he actually looked pretty good in their play-in games. Maybe, I think I said it a couple days ago. Like, that was a, about as good as Capella's looked at any point this year. So I like a little bit the under in this ball game. I don't know why I'm speaking like Yoda for a moment here. Uh, on the side, I think I'd probably leave it alone. It's a pretty big number of points for the Hawks to get. And I, again, I do think that this game is more competitive. I just, I mean, there's so many things the Heat can throw at Trey Young. Even if he has a better ballgame, they could opt to just take him out of it and say, all right, Bogdan, you go be better. He was awful in game one also. 0 oh, for 8. Can't imagine the two creators on that Atlanta side being any worse. So I probably leave this game alone. If I do anything, I look ever so slightly at the under- Ever so slightly. Probably not going to do it. Probably not going to do it. And then the Hawks, it'll be closer, but they got to get a lot closer than 24 to get within seven points. They got to get a lot closer. But again, like you could look at this in the very remedial level handicapping as Trey Young and Bogdan Bogdanovich could not be any worse. Those are the guys that drive the Hawks. The Heat are going to take them out to some degree, but. That's, I mean, defense is doing some of that. The other is just those guys missed everything. So slightly lean to the Hawks, slightly lean to the under. You know, the more I stare it down, the more I think maybe the Hawks of those two is the better lean. But we'll move on from that. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. T-Wolves, Grizzlies, this total's right on the money. Opened at 242, came down a couple of points to 240. The pace of game one had it right around 240 points, and that's where it finished. Playoff games do tend to slow down as you work your way through a series, so slightly lean to the under, just because 240 is a ridiculously high number, but I'm not touching it, because I really do believe that that's a good number. And then the Wolves, catching a ton of points again. Like I, You know, the Grizzlies are going to be better in game two, but it wasn't as though Memphis played a terrible basketball game. The wolves are proving themselves to be just good. I mean John Morant was solid. he had twenty free throws. I thought the Grizzlies were lucky to be as close as they were. I've said it before. I'll say it again, and i wanna i for for like the fifteenth time on the podcast, I wanna qualify what I'm about to say, which is. This is not Grizzlies slander, but the Grizz got to where they were this year by playing a brand of basketball that doesn't always translate into the playoffs, which is deep rotations, everybody going 100 miles an hour all the time. Other teams with shorter rotations can't keep up. They can't. Teams go at 75 to 85% most regular season basketball games. The Grizzlies were this rare team that was basically going at 100% during every regular season game. The other teams that have done that recently, I would argue the Raptors kind of did that this year by playing their starters a billion minutes. The Knicks did it last year by playing their starters a billion minutes and just playing harder than everyone else. Those teams tend to get Sort of smacked in the face in the postseason. Now, can those types of teams bounce back? Can the Grizzlies bounce back from taking one right in the jaw in the opener here? Which was like, oh my god, this other team, they played Cat 43 minutes. We didn't get to steamroll a backup for 11 minutes a game. We didn't get to out-energy them. The Wolves had a 1,000 fouls in this game. I counted them up. I counted them up. There were 1,000. There were actually 32. Obscenely high number. As we look now at game two, first of all, again, you know, the first win I did at 247, and it went over largely because of free throws. Largely because of free throws. Minnesota made theirs. The Grizzlies, eh, I mean, they didn't make them, but they also had 43, so what are you going to do there? Minnesota, a good rebounding team that took one of the Grizzlies' strengths and kind of nullified it. And the Wolves had a lot of turnovers. Grizzlies are good at forcing them. But, I mean, if Minnesota cleans that up, I don't know what's slowing that team down. So I like the Wolves catching the points. I think this will be a... a, I think Memphis probably wins this game in a tighter one. But, I mean, that's a big number for the Grizzlies being asked to cover. So I'd go right back to the Wolves. And again, if I'd lean at anything, I'd lean towards the under. I just, you know, Minnesota... Hitting their shots, their, their three-pointers were dropping, their free throws were dropping. The turnovers are the only thing that, you know, you might maximize. Get a few more offensive looks if you can bring that 17 turnovers down to like 12 to 14. But the other stuff I think has to come down. Fouls will come down, shooting will come down. And on the Grizzly side, turnovers, those probably go up if anything. Maybe they hold steady, but free throws at 43, that's going to come down by probably 15 so that's a lot of points that you're giving back. So slightly lean to the under, slightly lean to the Minnesota side in Game Two. Game Three on tonight, Pelicans Suns. This is another total that's right on the money. That first ball game uh, paced us out to about 220 points, but how it got there was super weird. With Phoenix getting out rebounded by 20, Pelicans having that many more opportunities in the game and losing. Pretty remarkable stuff. Suns shot 54%. Chris Paul went crazy late. The other stuff wasn't all that nuts. Free throw discrepancy was pretty tight. Turnovers relatively low. There's three things that I think happen in game two. I think the Pels shoot the ball better. I think the Suns shoot the ball worse. And I think the rebounding battle comes a little bit tighter. Which basically means, okay, so maybe Phoenix won't make every single shot. But they're not going to get out rebounded like that, so they're not going to get out opportunityed so much, and the Pelicans will shoot the ball better, so they won't have as many offensive rebounding opportunities. So I, you know, I think this is like this one ended around 200, but that was mostly because the Pelicans had a billion shot opportunities and missed most of them. Like I think they make more of their shots. They're going to break 100 probably here in Game Two. Phoenix might stick right around 110, but they probably get there by making more of their free throws or just not being as bad at rebounding. So I think that total is actually relatively tight. Again, if you look at anything, you look ever so slightly to the under because series do tend to slow down as you work your way through. And I think the Pels have a pretty good shot to keep this thing close. I mean, they sh- I thought they showed it in Game 1 that they're not going down without a fight. And Ingram was bad, and McCollum was bad, and they were still hanging in there because of that, well, because JV had 25 rebounds. So his advantage diminishes, but McCollum and Ingram are going to be better, and so you probably put this thing at around that 10-point spread again. If you assume the Pelicans hit a couple of shots that they didn't in Game 1, you could say, all right, well, maybe they lose by 7 or 8. Uh, I think the under may be more interesting than the side to me in this ball game, but that's where I sit. Slight lean to the under in all three games tonight, and slight lean to the dog in all three games tonight. Playoffs, baby. What a show. All right, let's get into our lesson learned for the day. And it's another tried and true. And, and so, l- look, I, yeah. sometimes I, I consider slowing myself down on these and just saying, well, you know what, we've done this before. What's the point of doing it again? But then I always look back and think, it's the off season Again, like I said it during the playoff recap part, what the hell's my rush? We got a lot of shows left here. And I kind of want to do these same things. Basically, once a season, it's a reminder episode for those of you that have been listening to this show for a number of seasons. And then those that joined us for the first time this year, you get this big piece of the puzzle that we really want to focus on. And we've done polls on it on twitter in the past and it's you know, the polls have have they bear out what we say and the lesson of the day is get off to a quick start i'm not yelling it i don't need to yell it because it doesn't require yelling this is just a very simple and very important part of the modern head-to-head construct In Roto, it's a little bit different, and I want to talk about both on today's show. Getting off to a quick start is very different in head-to-head versus Roto. Let's do Roto first because it's a much shorter discussion. Getting off to a quick start in Roto doesn't mean being at the top of the heap in your league. It actually means playing only the guys that are going to put up big-time lines until you know for sure... Who the other guys are. Basically, in Roto, you want to start your season by not wasting any games played. And it's a really hard mental hurdle to climb. Really hard. And I'm right there with you guys. Because at the beginning of the season, we're all hope. It's all rainbows and cotton candy and unicorns. Kristaps Porzingis, you say? It's a joke. I don't actually, you know talking about unicorns. the At the beginning of the season, there's so much anticipation. You've spent your whole offseason preparing. We have, certainly. And if you're with us here, then you have too. And then you have draft night, fantasy draft, or however many drafts you do, fantasy NBA. And then the season comes. And it's that first night, or it's the first big Wednesday, second day of the season, and most of your team is playing. And the innate desire human nature is you want that payoff you spend all this time waiting for this moment I'm not talking about that first Tuesday because you probably have two maybe three guys on your team that go that day if that much if even that much I'm talking about that first damn Wednesday oh it's a oh man it's such a great day it's such a great day I can think I can feel it already the season just ended a week and a half ago I can already feel that first wednesday of the season all your guys are going 12 out of your 14 12 out of your 15 guys are going you got a full lineup it's so tempting to make sure that you're playing 10 guys that day it's so tempting but i would argue that on the roto side unless you feel like and and maybe you do you know we can all make an argument as to why we drafted certain guys but if there were sort of upside type of guys that you didn't know how they were going to look at the beginning of the season, or you went against some old, best advice, drafted someone who maybe was a stash type. Don't play those guys their first game of the year. Don't drop them in right out of the shoot. Make sure that the games you're spending at the beginning of the season are games well spent on the roto side. This, of course, involving a games cap. I had someone say to me recently that I've, they've never heard of a games cap. And that person's probably playing in a weekly league, if I had to guess. Uh, in a weekly league, you don't need a games cap. In fact, you know, part of the Roto weekly attack method is you do want to maximize games because sometimes getting someone who's going to play four times at a top 125 clip actually does play better. It's a very different strategy, weekly Roto. It's actually probably the best. And I don't do it. I don't do it because I like daily. I like to be able to shuffle things around. But Weekly Roto is actually kind of a cool format. Because you're not just starting guys blindly. You're not just starting your best guys blindly every week. You actually do rotate in a guy who might have an extra game. Something like that. It's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. We used to have a premium weekly lineup show that then turned into a discord live chat and now you can pretty much ask whatever questions you want in there but it originally was focused heavily on sort of the big money weekly roto decisions those are the biggest money leagues floating around out there anyway it's a fun one give it a try if you haven't before check it out um but if you're talking daily then i think your your plan has to be to only drop the guys in there that you feel really confident are top 75 or better. And yeah, you might miss out on someone who's flopping around at like an 85-90 clip. And that's a guy that ultimately you, you would have wanted to start in that game. But maybe taking one or even two games to get a feel for who these players are could actually help you in the long run. Because there's some guys that get off to really rough starts at the beginning of the year. And if you don't blow those games you could use those for something pretty good later on. It's a little tougher right now, I'll admit, because we're in this era of the COVID where you know half of teams were just disappearing in December and a lot of us fell way behind in games played. But I don't think we can completely retool our roto strategy based on this, based on this. I, you know, I don't know what COVID's going to be like next year. I would assume that we're going to have outbreaks in the wintertime of some new variant pretty much every year for good god knows how long but i also have to assume that at some point we're going as a as a world going to kind of stop caring about it the way that we have so far and that's not me being callous that's just sort of a a, a rudimentary understanding of you know immunology which suggests that over time viruses do tend to become less deadly because they want to spread longer. I don't think this thing is going away. No, no. I think that would be a bit naive. But I do think that we're going to treat it more lightly every year as we move forward. Even now, quarantines are getting shorter, finding ways to test guys out quickly, so on and so forth. And I think maybe even by next year, if not next year, probably the year after that, you're probably going to start to see guys just... It's just not a thing that we're watching for as acutely on a game-to-game basis. But anyway, that's getting ahead of ourselves. We can make judgment calls on that in October when we have a feel for what the hell's going on in the COVID front and whether or not the NBA's changed any rules and so on and so forth. But for now, that's your fast start in Roto. Use your games wisely at the beginning of the year. More importantly, getting off to a hot start in head-to-head. And it's easier said than done. Because it's not just kind of a one-size-fits-all cap for how you want to start your season. If it were, I would just say draft a fully healthy team and go. But not only does your team actually have to be healthy. I do think that, by the way, that is part of it. We've talked about not drafting injured players to start the year. That's a big reason why. Because guys get off to weird starts. If you have three or four critical pieces on your team that just get off to a slow start, you certainly can't bear to have an injured player in the mix. And maybe you're in a league where there are like three or four injured list slots. And perhaps that does change the calculus a bit. But the way that I talk about it on this show is one, maybe two injured list slots on your team. More than that and... I don't know. I know right now you can make an argument that it is helpful to have them, but it also eliminates a certain part of the strategy and really thins out the waiver wire because everybody's just stashing everything, and so then all the backups to the backups are taken too. If you want to roll that way in a 12-team league, you're basically playing in a 14 or 16-teamer at this point. Getting off to a quick start in head-to-head... I don't know, maybe it rolls into another lesson that we could talk about tomorrow about the value of a bye week in your head-to-head playoffs. I don't think we can roll all of that into one show today. But the quick start in head-to-head is so important because then you can weather the storm of injured players. You can be a team that stashes someone if you've got a pretty good-sized lead in your head-to-head league. It affords you certain opportunities that teams lingering in the four, five, six, seven, eight, nine slots simply don't have. You won't be caught forced to drop one of your better players or even a middling player on your team to try to make the playoffs. You just have all these massive advantages as the season goes on. And all it takes is two, three, maybe four positive weeks to start the season. What do you need to do to get there? Well, again, in in sort of a vague, broad-stroke manner, thing number one is you do need to draft a healthy team. And if you have, like, don't... I would say don't use up your injured slots. Certainly leave at least one of them free for an early-season injury because someone on your team, even if you draft an injured player, someone on your team is going to get hurt in the first two to three weeks of the year. That's just the way the NBA works now. Someone's going to turn an ankle and uh, they'll miss three games, and Yahoo will make him IL-eligible, and then you do it. Like, I think it was Terry Rozier this season, and then he was back from the injured ankle, he tweaked another one, and then he was just great the rest of the year. There was not an injury scare after that point, but all of a sudden, this very durable player who was healthy to start the year had a couple of ankle tweaks right at the very beginning. Boom. Got him out of the way, but you needed to have that injured slot open for that guy. If you had to start taking those zeros because you used up your injured slots— You're not getting off to a quick start. And the beauty part is, other teams, I don't know if you're going to get to play each of them, but at least a handful of the teams in your league are going to start the season with somebody hurt. You already have a three or four game leg up on that team just by fielding a healthy roster. Heaven help you if you actually stream a little bit, although I tend to shy away from that because streamers this year might have, you know, accidentally dropped someone like a Tyrese Maxey after he had a big game and then a bad game and moved on from that or something like that. I love getting off to a good start, but I I don't know that I can condone hard streaming at the beginning of the year. Unless you are certain of one or two roster slots on your team that you, you sort of just had no intention of using for a season long guy. Because if that's the case, then we could amend our head-to-head strategy and say, look, you should be drafting with your last two draft slots whatever guys you want to stream the first few days of the season. We don't have the schedule out yet, but I'm sure some team is going to go Tuesday, Thursday or something like that to start the year. Like, look for a team that has three games that first week versus a bunch of teams that have two, and draft those guys. Or draft someone that goes Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, And then you can make a move for a Saturday-Sunday back-to-back or something like that. You can come out of the shoot in a five-day week and just blow four moves on Saturday and rack up an extra five or six games on your week. Maybe that's the new plan. Maybe we'll talk about that in September or August, wherever the schedule comes out. July? I forget. There's a lot of things you need to do to make sure you get off to that quick start and head-to-head. Make sure you're fielding a healthy roster. Make sure you're using some sort of effort to maximize games without risking guys that might have rest of season value on your team. It's hard, though. I mean, you're going to want to use a move or two the first day, maybe two days, because someone's going to come out of the woodwork. There's always, like, there's always one guy that shows up that first Wednesday that nobody was looking at. You want to be ready to make a move on that guy. And then, of course, the other thing to do to get off to a quick start is, and I hate to say this because I know we have a lot of proponents of it, don't punt a bunch of categories. It does make sense in a playoff situation, but you don't need to do it on draft night. And I'll argue with Adam about this. We'll have Adam King on the show here soon uh, to talk about some lessons learned. I think we'll, I, I, I've warned him that uh, at some point this offseason we're going to argue about punting again. Because I actually did it. I tried a bunch of punt big uh, formats this year, and I found myself, still picking up big men, and then ultimately being competitive in rebounds and, and field goal percent, despite on draft night basically trying to avoid all of it. So I, I want to argue with it a little bit because I do think that in leagues that are not the most competitive, it's really hard to build up a big regular season lead if you're only trying to win five out of nine categories right from day one. At the end of three or four weeks... I want all of us six games over 500 or better. You better be in the top four of your league in your head to head at the end of those three or four weeks or we've done it wrong. I can tell you this year uh, my team didn't get off to that great of a start. Mostly because I just had so many back end of the first round picks. Although the first couple weeks Paul George was pretty good before he got hurt. So... Those teams were hanging in there okay. Uh, uh, Jimmy Butler had a couple games, then he got hurt, so that whole thing went ha- happened really fast. Paul George looked like a great pick for the first three four weeks this year uh, before, you know, near Tommy John sidelined him for three quarters of a season. But in any event, get those healthy guys at the top of your draft, like we talked about on yesterday's show. Draft a largely healthy rostered. You can take your shots later on in head-to-head, but they better be healthy shots. They better be healthy shots. And get off to that quick start in whatever format you might be in. Whether it's head-to-head, and that's by racking up some wins early in the season, it just makes everything so much easier. The decision-making becomes fairly simple from that point. You can go rest-of-season mega-value hunting for weeks on end, or if you want to keep streaming and keep trying to build up some advantage, you can do that too. I don't care. And then in Roto, make sure you get off to a quick start by using your best guys. Don't blow games cap games at the beginning of the year on guys you're not 100% certain of. All right, back at it tomorrow. Same general philosophy, same general story. You guys already know what the lesson for tomorrow is going to be because I teased it today. We'll also talk playoff action. Keep tracking these games, how they're going, what we can learn from it. Maybe we can make a couple of dollars along the way. I am Dan Vespers for Fantasy NBA Today Sports Ethos Presentation. Friends, have a delightful Tuesday. Enjoy the games. Talk to you tomorrow.